right? Isn't that life? Big questions, all these big questions hanging out there. Big questions like, where did I leave my car keys? Or is my phone battery gonna last long enough for me to get home this evening? Those big questions that come up that, that we start to focus on. Well, we've got some other big questions too that, that really determine how we actually live. And so we're gonna walk through the next five weeks, we're gonna walk through five big questions. To, the, these questions, the, the, how we answer these questions will actually determine how we actually live. Not, not live one day in, in heaven, but live today in this moment, day in and day out. So I wanna invite you to, to stand with me and take out your Bibles. We're gonna look at 1 John 4. We're gonna look at uh, verses seven through 14. So just stand up with me as we read this and, and just come before God and cherish his word. Beloved, let's love one another. For love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. By this, the love of God was revealed in us that God has sent his only son into the world so that we may live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we remain in him and he in us because he has given to us his spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Father, we thank you for this word and this truth and this reality. And so Lord, I just ask that you would bless our hearts and our minds with this today. Lead us to the, the place of knowing you, knowing you more deeply and fully as you desire to be known by us. And Father, I just ask that, that, that you work in this place, whether it be through me or in spite of me, you choose, but I pray that you would work in our hearts and minds in this space this morning. We ask all that in Jesus' name, amen. So you can have a seat. So here's the deal, we're kicking off a new series, it's called Big Questions. Each week we're gonna explore questions that are kind of critical to actually living to how we actually live. And so if you remember a few weeks ago, we were talking about the fact that Jesus became as we are so that we could become as he is. That's the point of all this, right? To become as Christ is. That's what Second uh, Corinthians 3 talks about. It's what Colossians talks about. Becoming as Christ is. And so I think, this is what I believe, I believe that the answer to these five questions can actually help, help us catch a vision of what it looks like in our own individual lives to become as he is. So, we're gonna jump right in. We're gonna answer the first question, who is God? So we need to answer this, right? And you guys trust that that can be answered in 20, 25 minutes on a Sunday morning. I'm gonna give it a shot. <clears throat> So God is all-knowing, he's ever-present, he's unchanging, he's eternal, he's creator, he's love, he's merciful, he's compassionate, he's holy, he's perfect, he's all-powerful, he is ruler, he's the only one worthy of praise, he's peace, he's redeemer, he's Lord, he's king of all, he's protector, he's provider, he's the ultimate healer, he's the true comforter, he's the savior, he's glorious, he's righteous, he's sovereign, he's transcendent, he's just, he's faithful, he's wise, he's immortal, he's invisible, he's truth, he's infinite. Now do we pray and go home? 
See, here's the thing. Because God is infinite, I could go on forever and ever and ever and never fully describe him to you. Yet somewhere along the line, we've decided that our incomplete and inadequate list of adjectives actually make us feel as if we know God. Because I can tell you who he is, so I know him. Now let me ask you a question. If, guys, those of us who are married, took that same approach to our wives, how would that go? I can tell you who my wife is, so I know her. I don't need to spend time with her. I don't need to seek her, I don't need to desire her, I don't need to pursue her. I just need to be able to qualify and quantify her with words in your eyes. And she'll be ecstatic to have me as a husband. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think there's a little bit more to knowing. And that's what we're gonna walk through today is this idea of what does it actually mean, not only who is God, but what does it actually mean to know him? And so here's the thing. We have a tendency to approach God in terms of what we know of him and not in terms of actually knowing him. And I have a theory about this. I think that when the idea of intellectual knowledge and logical understanding became the foundations of faith in the church back in the, in the response to the, the Enlightenment in the late 1700s, early 1800s in North America, we began to lose the idea of relational knowing. We lost it. Because knowledge became about what's going on up here. And can I share it? And can I explain it? And is it logical and is it understanding? And can I make you see it? And so the relational side of knowing began to fall away. Listen to what pastor and author A.W. Tozer wrote. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Think about that. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Yet I would say that most of us don't treat it as the most important thing. We have a habit of going, do you know God? Yeah, I know God. So let me get this right. You feel adequate in your knowledge of the infinite? Okay. There's so much more. And so here's the problem. We have to address not only our narrative of God, who is God? What's the narrative that we've been taught and that we've grabbed onto and that we've shaped when we say, who is God? We have to address not only that narrative, but we also have to address our narrative of what it means to know God. That's where the problem comes in. We've lost the mystery of God. We've put him in a box, said I can manage him, I can hold him. Things like burning bushes and talking donkeys and all that cool Old Testament stuff that we would long to be able to have video of, but we, we just can't find it, still is out there in God's nature, but we push it to the side because we've removed the mystery. And so in their book, The Mystery of God, Christopher Hall and Stephen Boyer refer to God as an unknowable known. It's not very comforting in our Western intelligentsia mindset, Right? We gotta be able to explain everything and know everything. So to call God an unknowable known kind of makes us feel a little queasy. But here's what they mean by that. God is so far beyond our comprehension that we can only know him to the degree that he makes himself known to us. So what do I know of God? I know of God whatever God wants me to know of God. That's what I know of God. There's so much more. And so for me, this is actually good news. 
Because if I'm earnestly enthralled with God as a person instead of as a concept, and I'm searching for him deeply, guess what? I'm never gonna be satisfied by my desire to know him more. That desire is never gonna be satisfied. I'm never gonna become bored with who he is. I'm never gonna find the limits of his identity. I wonder sometimes if maybe that's why eternity is so long. It takes that long to get to know God, to truly explore him and get to know him. And so to know God, we have to know his desires, right? We have to know who he is, we have to know what he wants. And so Jesus gives us a clue in John 17, three, listen to this, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Here's the problem. When we tend to think of knowing as an intellectual concept, then I start to drift into that place of spending my time studying God and his attributes, thinking that eventually I'm gonna get to know him through that. But that's not the concept in John 17, three here. That word know in John 17, three is not that concept of intellectual ascent. Listen to Luke 1.34. Some of you, spoiler alert, it's the birth story of Jesus and, and the conception of Jesus. And some of you are thinking, what does this have to do with John 17.3? Well, good question. I'll explain it in a minute. But as we see here in Luke 1.34, here's what's going on. Gabriel shows up to Mary and says, hey, you're about to become pregnant with the Messiah. You're gonna name him Jesus. And this is what Mary says. But Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Well, the translation that is closest to the original language, the Greek, the best translation of that verse is, how can this be since I have not known a man? Now here's something interesting. The word, the Greek word that's used for know in John 17, three, and the Greek word that's used for known in Luke 1, the exact same word. Isn't that interesting? It's the word gnosko. So at some point in the history of Greek speakers, it became acceptable to say to truly know someone is gnosko, and it means such a deep, intimate knowing that we're actually gonna use it as a euphemism for physical intimacy. Huh. Doesn't sound like an intellectual endeavor to know God in terms of John 17, three, does it? It sounds a little more like what happens in a marriage bed? Two becoming one. Security, intimacy. And so here's why I bring that up, because we have to allow our narrative of what it means to know God to be shaped by the first century concept of knowing God, not our concept of knowing God. So John 17, three means to know God deeply, intimately, closely, with desire and passion and longing and seeking and pursuing. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you, Psalm 42, one. At night my soul longs for you. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently. Isaiah 26, nine. Whom have I in heaven but you, and beside you I desire nothing on earth. Psalm 73, 25, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Psalm 42, 2, oh God, you are my God, I seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you, and my flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 63, 1. 
starting to get a picture here of what it means to know God? Might go a little deeper than just being able to rattle off a group of adjectives that appropriately describe him. But there's a deeper place. It's about relational knowledge, not simply head knowledge. Jesus refers to himself as bread and water. And so I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been truly hungry or thirsty? Think about that. If you've ever been truly hungry, or I'm not talking about you know, somebody like me that's like 10.30 and you're ready to have first lunch so you can have second lunch at two o'clock. I'm not talking about that kind of hunger. I'm talking about deep hunger where you haven't eaten for maybe 24, 48 hours or thirsty. You haven't had a glass of water in 10, 12 hours. Think about how you became singular in that intention and purpose in your hunger and your thirst. All you wanted was food and water. Nothing else mattered to you. All you thought about, all you could seek, and all you could desire was food and water. See, here's the thing. That's what I want for Temple. That's what I want for us. I want us to be people who are so hungry and thirsty after God that nothing else matters and all we want is him. I want us to see Jesus as bread and water knowing that nothing else can satisfy us. And the only way we get to that place is we have a relational experience with God and that relational experience will lead to a greater longing for a more deeper, greater relational experience. And then that seeking becomes unseeking relational experience. My hope is that we can become a church of seekers who found God, but in finding God have realized that he is so far beyond our knowledge of him that we spend the rest of our lives and then all of eternity seeking him intimately and deeply. That's what I want. I want us to be the kind of people who someone, we bump into each other in the grocery store. What are you doing today? I'm looking for Jesus. Where are you looking for him at? Everywhere. Did you find him? A little bit. Come with me. Let's go find him together. That's what I'd like to see. And then once we've been in eternity, for eternity, looking for God and seeking God, we go, man, this isn't quite long enough. I need a little more time. Trevor Hudson in his book, Seeking God, writes this. We have a tragic tendency to regard only those who are outside the Christian faith as seekers. We then assume that once someone gives their life to Christ, their seeking comes to an end. It's exactly the opposite. That is when the quest really begins. Christianity is essentially a seeking faith. So I want to seek him a little bit deeper in in 1 John 4. So in verse 8, it says this. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. And so remember we said the word for know in John 17, 3 and in Luke 1, 34 was the Greek word gnosko. Well, the word that's used for know here is the word egno, E-G-N-O. And it's a word that implies an understanding type of knowledge. So what we have is the differentiation in the Greek language of deep intimate knowledge, oneness, and understanding head knowledge. That's important to note because if John had intended to tell us that eternal life was head knowledge of God, he would have used the word egno, not the word gnosko. 
So eternal life is more than just a head knowledge understanding of God. And now clearly understanding God's desires is important in knowing him intimately. We have to understand and know him on that level to be able to seek him. If you don't understand that God is love, then you won't seek to love God or others. So it's important. That's why the word agno is used there. You do not know God. What, what John is saying here is you don't understand God because God is love. You don't understand what love is. So who's God? Well, God is love and much more. We need to understand that. The foundation of the answer to our question, who is God, for this, this sermon, this series, is God is love. Because without that understanding, we will never press into the deeper places of God. And so listen to this, verses nine through 12 in 1 John 4. By this, the love of God was revealed in us, that God has sent his only son into the world so that we may live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, right, we established that in the last series. Who are we? We're God's beloved in Christ. So this is to us, because we are the beloved. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is perfected in us. So these verses are John's way of making the case that love is the litmus test of God's abiding and perfecting love in us. So what John is saying, here's the proof text. You wanna know if God's in you and if you're in God, well, love is the litmus test. That's how we know. It's not a commandment, per se, to say, hey, you gotta go out and love, but what John is saying, he's casting a vision of what it looks like to know God the agno kind of God, knowing, the, the understanding, the mental ascent, to know God, what does it look like? So it looks like love. And how that abiding of God in us manifests itself as love and leads us to love one another. So that's, that's those middle verses there, nine through 12. John's saying, here's the litmus test. Are you in God? Well, then you'll love because God loves you and you'll love others. So you need to understand what love is. You need to have a head knowledge of what love is. And then he goes on in verse 13. And this is where it gets really, really good. So are you ready for this? Buckle up, buckle up just a little bit, tighten your seatbelt, because here we go. By this we know that we remain in him and he in us, because he has given to us his spirit. Okay, so by this we know. What word do you think is there? It's the word gnosko. It's not agno anymore. So agno, you understand that God is love. Now gnosko, you experience it becomes the experience, the intimate longing. So now we're back to gnosko. Verse eight was agno. Here's the proof, understand it, here's the evidence. Now it's back to gnosko. Experiential, intimate, intensely deep longing, passionate, enthusiastic, zealous knowing. So okay, here's what John is saying that love is. Love of God, of one another, is how we know in the deep, intimate, relational, experiential way, oneness with God. It goes from here to here. We have to understand what love is, we have to. And we have to understand that God is love. And we have to understand that if he's in us and we're in him, that love's gonna be manifest in our lives. But if we stop there, it's an ineffective gospel. We become those people that Jesus looks at and goes, depart from me, I never knew you. We have to take the next step, the step towards experience, the step towards longing, 
the step towards intimacy with God. And so are you still with me? Because I'm going to show you something else that's even better. We're going to plunge into the most exciting, life-changing place we can go. You ready? By this, we know that we remain in him and he is in us. Let that sink in for a minute. How many of us grew up with that idea? You gotta believe in Jesus so you can be with God one day. You gotta accept Jesus so you'll be with him in heaven. And what John's saying here is no, 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 no. You need to move to a place of deep, intimate knowing so that you will be in him and he will be in you. Think about that for a minute. I don't think you guys are getting it because you're sitting there like you're thinking about your turkey tomorrow or something. If you got that, you'd be as excited and foolish and out of control as I am. Think about that. We exist in him. We remain in him and he in us. In him. We aren't simply invited to be with God, but to actually be in him. And so I want to share a picture I took back in the spring when I was at Trinity Monastery in Adair, Ireland. I found this carving of a Celtic symbol for the Trinity on the ground. And so I went and I stood in the center of it so that I could be reminded that I'm not simply invited into being with God, but to be in God. I said, I'm going to put my feet square in the center of God. And anytime I feel like I'm drifting, I'm going to go back to that. Because he's holding me there. I'm not holding me there. His spirit sealed me there. He's desiring for me to abide in him and him to abide in me. Now, listen, that's what that genosco is. That's what that deep knowing is that's in 1 John 4, 13. It's in John 17, 3, that Mary spoke of in Luke 1, 34. It's intimate, it's oneness, it's in, it's not with. And so here's the deal. I want to explain the Trinity to you. Clearly you have no concept of what that means, otherwise you would have just laughed. But I'm satisfied with the Trinity being what Paul said it was, a deep mystery. I can't explain it. I can't explain it. I can't explain what it is, but I can't explain why it's necessary. See, this is the reason God has to exist in Trinity. It's back to 1 John 4, 8. God is love. And here's the thing about love. Love needs an object. Love cannot exist without a beloved. Without a beloved, love is simply frustrated. It's simply theoretical. It's not practical. It doesn't actually exist. And so knowing God in the egno way without practice is frustrating too. If I limit my knowledge of God to understanding, then I'm gonna be frustrated by that because God is love. Love must be experienced. It cannot simply be understood. We don't get married because we understand love. We get married because we experience it in another person. And so once we realize that God is one God in three persons, then we begin to understand what it means that he is love. And so here's the deal. A triune God can be love without frustration or need because every person of the Trinity has two beloveds always and forever. 
So God has to exist in multiple persons. He's chosen to exist in three persons because without that, to be love would mean if he were us, existed in one person, we, we'd have to constantly be searching for a beloved. But because God is love, he has to exist in three persons so that he always has a beloved. So God is love, but God is also the object of his love. Now here's why that matters. Back to that picture. This means something because it also means that God as a trinity has space for more beloveds. So because God exists in Trinity, he has space for more beloved. The Son and the Spirit are the beloved of the Father. The Father and the Son are the beloved of the Spirit. But he's got space for more. He's got infinite space because he's infinite. And so 1 John 4, 13, we remain in him and he in us means that there's space for all of us to be the beloved of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, just as each person of the Trinity is beloved of the other persons of the Trinity. So to be in him means that we are in the very nature of love itself, God. Do you see now why we need to go back to the early church's idea of intimate, experiential knowledge of God, not just our modern church ideas of intellectual and logical understanding. Because without that, we're never gonna have that experience of being in God. We're gonna have that experience of being with God at best. At best. But you know what the greatest obstacle to great is? It's good. Being with God is good, but it's not great. And once we satisfy ourselves with a head knowledge of God, rather than an experiential knowledge of God, what we're doing is we're creating an obstacle to the great, to the best, which is to exist in God and have him exist in us. Now here's the deal. I know that some of this might feel a little bit overwhelming, to have somebody stand up and go, hey, you need to have an intimate and deep personal relationship that's experiential with a transcendent, invisible God. Okay. <laughs> Fantastic. How? <laughs> How? It's a lot easier when there's flesh next to me. I can experience that. And so the true knowing God that's in John 73 begins with a passionate desire for God. That's the starting point. As human beings, particularly in the Western culture, you know why we have what we have? Because it's what we want. It's just the way it is. But wait, I didn't choose my life this way. No, you made choices that got you to this point. And it, you haven't reached that place yet where you said, I'm willing to exert the effort and the energy to make it move towards something else. We have what we have because that's what we want. Desire drives us. Desire drives us in deep ways that we're not even aware of. That's why we have to become emotionally healthy in our faith because we'll become aware of the desires that are driving us that we don't see. And so here's the deal. We need to steer our desires towards God rather than other stuff. I'm gonna invite you to, to go to the Facebook page this afternoon and look at a video. It's about seven minutes long. 
It's a video of a, a guy, a section of a sermon a guy preached way back in the 70s. And um, I'm not going to give it away, but I'm going to invite you to go to the Facebook page and, and, and watch it. Because it's such a fantastic picture of what passion for God sounds like and what it can be like. The, the, the guy's name is Dr. Shadrach Meshach Lockridge. Poor dude. He never had a chance to be anything but a pastor, right? Never had a chance to be anything but a pastor. His parents set him up from day one. But we need to get a picture of what it looks like to say I've got a deep, longing, passionate desire to experience God in my daily life. And so the other thing I want to do is I want to give you a practice to follow for the next few weeks while we're going through this series. And if you want to know somebody, what do you do? You do stuff with them, right? Think about it when you're a little kid and dad comes up and goes, hey, come on, you're coming with me, we're going to work on the car. Like, all right. Our mom says, come on, I'm gonna help, you're going to help me make a birthday cake for your brother. Okay. You look back on those times, and those times weren't about learning how to do something on the car. Those times were about spending time with your dad, spending time with your mom. So, so one of the things we do in our house, just as a way to say, no, we're going to maintain closeness, intimacy, and oneness in our marriage, is we don't have solitary chores anymore. There's no, oh, well, the kitchen's got to be cleaned. You unload the dishwasher, I'll take the trash out. No, we'll unload the dishwasher. We'll clean the kitchen. We don't divide and conquer a lot anymore. Because here's what we found. We found that the experience of doing those things together builds intimacy. If I go, okay, I'm going to clean this bathroom and you're going to clean the kitchen, we're not together. Yeah, it gets irritating sometimes because... Honestly, she's out of town this weekend, but Doreen doesn't know how to load a dishwasher right. <laughs> Don't tell her. So it does get irritating. But guess what part of intimacy is? Learning how to irritate each other and be okay with it. It really is. You know, if I don't have an intimate relationship with some of you, you irritate me, I'm walking away. You do the same to me. But intimacy grows when we learn that I can irritate you and we can be okay with it. And so that's what I want you to do over these next few weeks. This practice is go out and do something with God. And that something is to serve. Now here's my definition of serving. This is my definition of serving. Serving is willfully laying down my time, talent, and treasure for the glory of God and the benefit of others. Willfully laying down my time, talent, and treasure for the glory of God, the benefit of others. I'm not doing any service if the lady who's, who's going out of the grocery store parking lot in front of me that has me blocked in has a flat tire and I get out and change her tire. That's not serving. I'm just trying to get her out of my way. Serving is willfully laying down time, talent, and treasure. And so I want to encourage you to do that without telling people that you're serving them. Over the next week or so, just say, God, I want to do this thing with you. Open my eyes to the thing that you are doing and I'll participate with it. Maybe it starts with the people in your house, people at work, the people that are closest to you. But the discipline of serving is intentionally saying, I'm going to lay down something that is mine for the glory of God and the benefit of others. God's already working. working. 
He's working in the lives of the people around us. What I'm inviting you into is become intentional, not to do great things for others, but to do something with God. I want you to view the next week as God under the hood changing the spark plugs and inviting you as that little boy to come outside and do this with me. Or as God in the kitchen making that birthday cake for mom and saying, hey, come with me, do this with me. Let's serve towards intimacy, not production. So here's the deal. You walk through your world over the next four weeks, you, you think about 1 John 4, and you look and you go, God, where are you working? Can I help? Can I do that with you? Can I get some grease under my fingernails? Can I break a few eggs? Because I want to do what you're doing. Because I know in the doing together, I'm going to know you more. Listen to 1 John 4, 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If God so loved us. So what is God doing? He's loving us. Do I want to participate with God? Do I want to have intimacy with God? Then it's time for me to start loving others. When we're serving, when we're willfully laying down our time talents and treasures for the glory of God and the benefit of others, we're going to begin to experience what it means that God is abiding in us and we're abiding in him. I invite you to do that over the next week or so. Start with those closest to you and then go outward from there. Father, we're so grateful. We're thankful. We love you love the fact that you are doing things constantly and you just invite us into coming alongside you and doing them with you. Open our eyes. Let us see clearly what you're doing. Teach us to be willful in laying down our time and our treasure and our talents for your glory and for the benefit of others. And in that process, God, we know that our intimacy with you our desire for you, our oneness in you, and your, your presence in us grows as we work together to manifest your love in a world that so desperately needs it. And so we love you, we long for you, and we seek you out in Jesus' name. Amen.